and turn over to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we've all heard that we're instructed to love our enemies. Um, and uh, uh, we're going to see a little bit where that comes from this morning, but more importantly, um, what, <coughs> what the Word of God says as far as uh, how we're to act toward one another, uh, interpersonal relationships. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 43 through 48 of Matthew chapter 5 this morning, so you can just follow along as I read this for you. Once again, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is the kind of the last illustration that Jesus uses here concerning matters of the heart. All this time he's been talking about matters of the heart. He talked about murder, talked about adultery, talked about divorce, talked about oaths, <coughs> talked about last week about retaliation, getting even, how we're not to do that. And today he talks about uh, the great um, topic of love. And... Um, you have to understand, all along, the Pharisees have been feeling pretty good about themselves. Um, the scribes and the Pharisees kind of built up this false uh, righteousness of their own. Remember, they took the Word of God and they lowered it down to their standard and they said, well, obviously we can't keep the Word of God the way it was written, so let's just kind of interpret it for ourselves. And so therefore, you know, uh, each of these sections, Jesus starts off and he says, you have heard that it was said. And he's not referring necessarily to the Old Testament, but he's referring to the oral tradition, the law that was created by the scribes and Pharisees to kind of demean the law of God, to bring it down to their level so that when they kept their oral law, they could feel pretty good about themselves. And it kind of built up this self-centered, self-righteous uh, persona about them. And everywhere you see them in Scripture, they're always kind of making themselves out to be something they're not. Um, and so Jesus kind of confronts them once again right here in, in verse 43. He said, you have heard that it was said. Now remember, not by the word of God, not by God himself, but by your tradition, by your teachers. And here's what he says. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. <laughs> well, that first phrase is correct. You shall love your neighbor. That's the only part of this phrase that was adapted from the Old Testament. If you turn back into Leviticus chapter 19, it tells us there in verse 18, it says basically that it requires us, Leviticus 19 verse 18, <coughs> you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. How convenient. They seem to have left that part out. <laughs> See, love your neighbor as yourself. The scribes and the Pharisees didn't want to include that, so they just kind of told their people, hey, you know what, here's what we want you to do. Just love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is our version. Um, it's funny how people take the Word of God sometimes and they come up with their own version. Um, you know, they'll paraphrase Scripture to mean something that it doesn't mean. 
That's why it's so important when you're studying the Word of God to work out of a good translation, something that's that's uh, kind of true to the, the original text. You know, some people, they'll study out of the message or out of these other, you know, uh, versions, and they're not really translations. They're more, you might say, paraphrases. And you can get real problems sometimes if they take a little too much leniency in the way they're interpreting what the original language intended to be. Now, if they do it in the right way, that's great. It just kind of colors up the, the passage and helps you understand a little more what the original language meant. But sometimes they, they do it in the wrong way. And so it gives you the wrong um, presentation of the, the original intent of the Word of God. So you have to be careful. Well, here, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were doing just that. They took God's Word and they changed it and they wanted to make it their own. Um, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, you know, this isn't... A lot of times when people look at this passage, they think, okay, well, this is New Testament stuff. Surely, in the Old Testament, they weren't commanded to love their neighbor. Well, we just read out of Leviticus where they were commanded to love their neighbor. And even in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 1 to 4, if you look at that, you don't have to right now. But it even goes on further that if, if there was a, uh, uh, they were instructed to help their fellow countrymen, if they lost an ox or if they lost a sheep or something like that, you couldn't just take it, but you had to return it to um, your neighbor in Deuteronomy 22, verses 1 to 4. But God also commanded them to do the same thing for their enemies. And uh, in Exodus, turn back there with me, if you will, Exodus 23. Exodus 23. And I just want you to Follow along and I'll read verses 4 and 5 for us. Exodus 23 and verse 4. He says, If you meet your enemy's ox, not your neighbor's, but your enemy's ox, or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, and you would return, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. All right. The idea is, is that it's not just God's law that we reach out and help our neighbors or our friends or family, whoever we want to, but even our enemies. In all those teachings in the Old Testament, Jesus kind of pulls up and throws them right back in the face of the scribes and Pharisees of his day. Now remember, Jesus here in all his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, he's speaking here about personal standards of righteousness. He's talking about something that applies to us as individuals. He's not talking about government. He's not talking about civil law, things like that. He's talking about something that we apply to us personally. So here, the enemy spoken of in Exodus 23, I don't want you to think that it's the enemy soldier that's getting ready to lop your head off. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an individual. Whether it's a countryman, maybe your neighbor, or a foreigner, or in some other way, somebody that's against you, maybe even an enemy. Even then, as an individual, you, you, should, you don't have the right to just go treat even their animals in a wrongful way. That was God's standard. And God never had a double standard when it's concerning righteousness. Um, Psalm 119.96 says, His commandment is exceedingly broad. And in the fullest sense, an Israelite's neighbor was anyone in need. Anyone in need, whom he might come across in his daily life. Like we read this morning out of Luke. They asked Jesus the question. What did they ask him? Well, who is my neighbor? That's a good question. Who do you think is your neighbor? Do you think it's just a guy across the street? Do you think it's the guy just next door? Do you think it's just a classmate that sits next to you in class? Is that it? Turn over to the book of Job. We'll jump around a little bit this morning, but... Good to learn where all these books are in the Bible anyway. Job chapter 31. We all know the story of Job, but this is just kind of a little insight into uh, kind of a certain characteristic that he had, a a certain way of doing things which was very... um, pleasing in God's eyes. In Job 31, look at verse 29. 
Verse 29, he says, Job is saying, If I have rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me, or lifted myself up when evil found him, indeed, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse for his soul. What's, what's Job saying here? Job basically lived in a period of time, um, perhaps during the time of Abraham, certainly hundreds of years before the law was ever even given to Moses. And he was obviously a man who was very blameless. He was upright. Job 1.1 says that he was fearing God. He turned away from evil. And here he's saying, you know what? If, if something happens to an individual who's my enemy, I don't have the right before God to kind of gloat about that. Now that goes against every... Uh, fiber in our being, pretty much. You know, when somebody hurts us, and they get hurt in return somehow, something inside us just goes, yeah, there is a God. You know, like, I mean, that's, that's kind of what Job is saying we're not supposed to do. We're not supposed to rejoice over, I mean, God forbid it would be our neighbor or, or our friend's downfall or something wrong with them, something happens to them. But here he's talking about an enemy, a personal enemy. He says, I don't want to go there because that would be, really, that would be sinful before God, and I don't want to do that. He did more than simply refrain from doing harm uh, to others. He even gave them help. If you look in, in verses 31 and 32, he goes on there, and he says, Have the men of my tent not said, Who can find one who has not been satisfied with his meat? The alien has not lodged outside, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. See, Job was the kind of guy that just kind of loved everybody. And his love translated into action. And that's the way it should be with us as believers. Um, even David prayed over in Psalm 7, verse 5, If I have rewarded evil to my friend or have plundered him, who without cause was my adversary, let the enemies pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Even David understood that God has a certain standard for those who are going to trust him and follow him. And it, that standard even comes down to how we treat our enemies, how we treat those who do something wrong against us. David knew that it was wrong to do evil against someone who had wronged him, just as it was evil to do something against a friend. Um, in another psalm, in Psalm 32, verses 12 to 15, he says this, They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul, but as for me, when they were sick, speaking of his enemies, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced. So he's not talking about his friends here. He's talking about enemies. And David grieved over and prayed for his enemies when they were sick and in need. And in spite of all that, what happened? Did everything work out rosy? No, it says they, they repaid him evil for good. Which, in the world we live in, that happens a lot, doesn't it? That's just the way it is. And so he actually lived out his faith in that way. Stop and think about it. When Saul was seeking to kill him and was hiding in a cave there in Gedi, we were actually there in those, in those caves, and you can look up, and it's just an amazing sight. Just, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of these little places you could crawl into. And they say that if you walk up there far enough that you can actually, some of them are, are huge, like auditoriums, these caves. Well, we, we find in, the, in Scripture that David had the perfect opportunity to kill Saul, the guy who was chasing him. But what did he do? Just, yeah, he just went in and kind of snuck in, a stealth kind of bomber kind of guy, guy you know, snuck in there and cut a piece of his robe off. But he didn't harm him. And it was like, Wow. You know, his men were like, what are you, crazy? Just take them out. I mean, this is our enemy we're talking about. You don't mess around with these guys. They're, they're, he's looking to kill you, and you're just going to cut a piece of his robe off? And in 1 Samuel 24, verses 3 to 7, it says, So he said to his men, Far be it from me that the Lord, from, uh, of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. Even though Saul was seeking to kill him, he knew 
still understood the structure of authority here. To stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. See, David would not harm Saul directly. He would not let anyone else harm Saul directly on his behalf. Because his, 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 his uh, just conviction and his, his heart was sincere in this matter. He would not hate his enemy. Remember another occasion when David became king and a relative of Saul, in Shimei, when he threw rocks at David and cursed him. And here's what David's response was. If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall I, or who shall say, why have you done so? In other words, David even gave him this guy the benefit, the guy that's throwing chucks and rocks at him and cursing him, and he's the king, he could just say, hey, you know, off with your head. But he didn't do that. In Proverbs 17.5, it tells us, He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. Will not go unpunished. Proverbs 24.29 says, Do not say, Thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. Proverbs 25.21 says, If your enemy is hungry... Give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Throughout all the Old Testament, God's standard for his people was to treat even their enemies like their friends and their families. That's a hard standard. And you know what? It's, it's interesting to me that our country kind of understands this. You know, what, whatever your position on the war is, all right. The one thing our country always does is it reaches out to those in need. And there are, are thousands and thousands of people, even in war-torn Iraq and Afghanistan, that are reaping the blessings of this great country, even though their whole country is, 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 is basically an enemy of ours. We're still concerned with the people. We don't just go in and carpet bomb everybody and kill everybody. And that's a, that's a kind of a, a biblical thing. We want to reach out. Now, that doesn't mean that we just lay back and let people trample all over us. And remember, this is not talking about wartime or government against government. It's talking about individual against individual. So it's kind of a, a different thing here, but I just thought that was an interesting side note. Well, you see here in verse 43 how they changed this whole thing. See, the Word of God said, You shall love your neighbor and your enemy. <laughs> You should help them no matter what, basically. You should always do that if you want to be a faithful follower of God. And what they say, you shall love your neighbor and what? Hate your enemy. Interesting. They perverted what God's word said. And each time Jesus repeats these illustrations, whether it has to do with murder or adultery or divorce, whatever it is, He's always constantly saying, here's what you heard, but here's what God's Word says. See, sometimes when people hear God's Word in a perverted way, in a way that, that is not meant by the intent of the verse, they, they take it into their heart, they take it into their being, and they start living accordingly. And I've talked to people sometimes who have been mixed up in some pretty weird things. And they'll tell you, you know what? It took me years to change the thinking that that cult or that, that situation put on me because they were misrepresenting what God's Word said to me. And I didn't know any better. I was a new believer, so I just went along with it. And then finally I started reading God's Word and I began to realize, wait a minute, it doesn't say that. And so when you pervert, you take God's Word and you make it say something that it doesn't intend to say, very dangerous. Well, that's what they were doing. And what they concluded was, hey, love was basically reserved for those who you get along with. That's who you love. <laughs> and the enemies, well, you hate them. You don't, have to love, you don't have to love your enemies. I mean, that's ridiculous. Who could do that? And so Satan takes God's word and he perverts it with some half-truths now and then. And, you know, if, if you want to see this in a very real way, just turn on your TV and, and go through the sordid televangelists that are on your TV every Sunday or during the week. Some of them 
are great. Solid truth built on God's Word. I mean, wonderful. Preaching everything. Others, you could listen to them for maybe 15 minutes, and all of a sudden, they start saying some stuff, and you're going, well, wait a minute. Where's this guy going with this? I don't believe that's in the Bible. And he goes off on some tangent, on something that you know has nothing to do with the Word of God or whatever, and he builds a whole message around it. We have to be careful about that. We have to be discerning, especially in the days and ages in which we live today. And so the rabbis and the scribes kept a part of God's truth away from the people about love. He says, you shall love your neighbor. That's clear in the, the indication of the Old Testament. But Leviticus 19, 18 says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear a grudge against the sons of your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Interesting how they left that part out. They omitted that part. And that was kind of a uh, a, a way that they could build themselves up in the people's eyes. I mean, they, they could not conceive of caring for somebody as much as they cared about themselves. And I don't know about you, but a lot of us can, can, can kind of conclude the same thing. You know, there's not many people who, given the opportunity, if a train's coming down the track... And there's some bum standing there, and you're standing there. And if you push the bum out of the, the way of the train, you're going you're gonna to die. There's not many people that will do that. Now, if it was your wife or your child, well, sure. <laughs> See, and that's, that's how they, they changed this. And they said, well, you know, we don't have to really love our enemies. We're, to, we're called to hate our enemies. And so they perverted the Word of God. And they started by omitting certain things. And a lot of times you have to be careful. Even today, <laughs> the Bible teachers, things like that, we want to teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. We don't want to just take a little bit here and a little bit there. Or, well, well, this verse says this, this. You have to take everything within its context, but then you also have to take it within the context of the whole counsel of the Word of God. Right? I mean, you, you can't take a verse that says, well, God repented. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, he made a mistake. I mean, that's crazy. If you know anything about the character of God, you know he's perfect. He can never make a mistake. Well, what does that verse mean? Well, then you go back into it and you find out. But you, you know the one thing it can't mean is this. And so we have to learn to study God's Word in a whole fashion, in a way that we take it in context, that we, we kind of go through the Scriptures in a methodical way. You know, that's why I like to teach through books of the Bible. I don't like to jump all over the place just topically doing whatever I want from week to week. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm flaky enough. I mean, God knows what you would get if that was my style of preaching. You know, at least now I'm, I'm constrained to these verses like this morning here, verses 43 through 48. That's what we're looking at. And so you see that, that Jesus here is, is trying to get across that there's more to just saying, oh, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Uh, remember the scribe who asked Jesus which was the greatest commandment? Uh, confirmed Jesus' answer. He said, oh, truly you have said in, in, in Mark 12 uh, that to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifice." See, on another occasion when Jesus asked a certain lawyer, what is written in the law? How do you read it? How does it read to you? The lawyer basically accurately quoted Deuteronomy 6, 5. And then the end of, of uh, Leviticus 19, 18, including, and your neighbor as yourself. So they, it's not like they didn't know this. It's not like, well, maybe they didn't know it was there. No, they knew. They studied the law. They knew it. And they, they specifically took it out to kind of make themselves... Looked, looked, looked better. And, uh, you know, you, you think of the, the Pharisee who, who kind of looked around and said, oh, I, I thank God I'm not like other people. That was, their, that was in their being. That's who they were. And it was very typical of people of the day. And you know what? It's even typical of people today. Very seldom do we do something that doesn't, you might say, interest us. You know, we go after things that interest us. When I go home and, 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 and we're sitting down and, and we're watching TV, 
I'll be honest, very seldom do I say, well, dear, what do you want to watch? You know, I just don't do that. Where's the remote? I got the remote. Okay, military channel, here we come, you know. And usually she'll get up in frustration and go work on the computer or whatever. But, you know, because I know that we have different likes and dislikes in that area. But what would be the right thing to do? The right thing to do would be, well, what would you like to do? To give preference to the other person. See, and that's the standard that God would hold us to. But we always look out after our own interests. And that's basically what, what people did in Jesus' day, and that's basically what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. And these tax gatherers that he talks about here, basically they were, you might say, kind of Jews gone amok. <laughs> they, they, they were Jewish people who, who decided to go and kind of pledge allegiance to the Roman government and then go collect taxes from their own people for the Roman government. Kind of traitors, you might say. And uh, some of them weren't even considered worthy to be called Jews. And so when he says here, he refers to them, that even the tax gatherers do that. That's who he's referring to. Um, Sinners were such criminals and prostitutes who were publicly known for their immorality. That's what he's talking about there. But, you know... The Pharisees always looked down on those people. Oh, I'm not like them. I'm not like them. They had a false sense of their own self-righteousness. And we have to be careful with that. They even dismissed those who believed in Jesus. They said this in John 7. They said, No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him. Has he? Talking to the crowd. But this multitude, which does not know the law, is accursed. They even bragged that they knew the law better than everybody else while they were perverting it. And so they, they, they took things out of it. They also added things to it, i.e., hate your enemy. That's not in there. If you go back in the Old Testament, it doesn't say that at all. Their addition was probably more perverse than the omission that they left out, your neighbor as yourself. But it, it kind of goes with what they were trying to do. You stop and think, one thing that that was not considered their neighbor were Gentiles. Gentiles were not considered neighbors of the Jewish folks back then. One Pharisaical saying says this, If a Jew sees a Gentile fallen into the sea, let him by no means lift him out. For it is written, Thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor. But this man is not thy neighbor. See, that was the oral tradition that they passed down. And all this stuff came up between these people where God's word was very clear. Hey, you're you're to even love your enemies. And you could see where the Roman government looked at certain Jews and said, you know what, they they basically hate the human race. They they have no concern for people. Um, And they would always try to kind of justify this. They would justify their hatred of Gentiles. And they would say, oh, it's based on the command of God to their forefathers to drive out the Canaanites, the Midianites, the Moabites, the Amorites, the Parasites, everything else, okay? And, and, and to possess the promised land. Well, you have to stop and you have to think about, you know, those inhabitants of Palestine at that time were the most vile, corrupt, depraved known to history. They were unbelievably immoral. They were cruel. They were idolatrous. Um, they would sacrifice their own babies to their gods, just to give you an indication of how sick they were and how pagan their hearts were. And they were a cancer, and God said, you know what, we need to cut this cancer out. And so there were wars within Israel against these people, and they were told to wipe the whole people out. So then the Pharisees and the scribes, they look at that and say, see, we're supposed to hate our enemies. Well, once again, God isn't talking here about nation against nation. He's talking about individual against individual. And did Israel deal harshly with these people? Definitely. An entire people were wiped out at times, including children, everything. But it was under the instruction and the instrument of God's judgment. But God's people on a personal level were never to return evil for evil, cruelty for cruelty, hatred for hatred. That was never to happen. And so they took that, the Pharisees did, and they used it to their advantage. And so they came up with this tradition that 
hey, we're justified in hating our neighbor. So what do we do? What's the golden rule for us? Well, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That makes it real simple. Everybody can do that. And so we have to stop and remember that, hey, that's not what God has called us to do. If you stop and you, you think of, of uh, God's attitude toward people throughout Scripture, we have to have a balance of love and justice. It doesn't mean when something in the world wrong happens that we just turn our head the other way and say, oh, let's just send them some food. No. There's times when our nation has to rise up and go and, and deliver justice to people that deserve it. But once again, we're talking on a personal level. And we're to share God's kind of balance of this love and this justice. Remember, God loved Adam, but what did he do? He cursed him. God loved Cain, but he punished him. God loved Sodom and Gomorrah, but he destroyed them. God loved Israel, but he allowed her to be conquered and exiled at times in her history. And he set her aside for a while. Still loves her. See, and the scribes and the Pharisees had no balance at all in this. They had no love for justice. They only wanted vengeance. They had no love for their enemies, but only for themselves. They just constantly inflated their own egos and built themselves up. Well, what's the perspective of Christ in all this? So he says, well, here's what you you guys said. But then in verse 44, he says, But I say to you, the first thing he tells him here, he tells him five things, basically. The first thing is he says, But I say to you, love your what? Love your enemies, right? It's probably the most powerful teaching about love. The love that God commands of his people is love so great that it even embraces our enemies. That's that's a pretty amazing kind of love. Um, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were proud, they were prejudiced, they were judgmental, all those things. They were vengeful men. And they basically acted like these spiritual leaders of Israel. And to them, Jesus basically pointed his finger and said, you know what, I command you to love your enemies. And when he said that, it must have seemed totally out of nature. They must have said, say, what? What are you talking about, love your enemies? That's not how we operate. And once again, Jesus has to bring back the divine standard of God's Word and say, here's what God's Word says. Here's what you said. You're down here on this level. God's level is way up here. And you need to kind of readjust that standard for yourselves. And in placing what he he said above what was tradition, he placed his Word on par with Scripture. And that just angered him. Because they didn't, they thought, who is this guy to say that he says this or he says that or whatever? He's placing his, his word on par with scripture. And you notice that he not only placed emphasis on what was said, but on who said it. It was not just that his teaching was the standard of truth, but that he himself was the standard of truth. That's, that's what Christ was getting across. And what he was saying is your great rabbis, your scribes, your scholars, they taught you all this stuff that you should love only those who you prefer to love and hate your enemies. And then he says, but based on my authority, being God, I declare that they are false teachers and have perverted God's revealed truth. The divine truth is that you should love your enemies. First thing he points out to them. You know, that's what he expanded upon in the, the, the story we read for our scripture reading, the, the story of the Good Samaritan. When they asked, who is your neighbor? Well, he gives them an illustration. And you could tell, some of those just walked right by the guy laying in the ditch. And they were the religious people of the day. See, we love people who are attractive. Um, we love hobbies that are enjoyable to us. We love a house or a car because it looks nice, it pleases us, and all this stuff. But see, 
you, get, you have to remember true love is need-oriented. The good Samaritan demonstrated great love because he sacrificed his own, or his own conveniences to be inconvenienced by this guy laying in the ditch. In the Greek language, there's, there's basically four terms that we use for love. The first one deals with a brotherly love. Get the word Philadelphia from us. A true love friendship. Storge is the love of the family, kind of a between family members. Eros is that romantic, sexual kind of love. But the kind of love that Jesus speaks about here is agape. The love that he seeks here is the kind that works to meet another's needs, to help them out. Disrespecting our own needs at the time. It's not a kind of a love necessarily that involves emotion. It may involve some emotion, but it definitely involves action. You remember in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul lists out 15 characteristics of love. And all those things are true. Love must involve attitude, but it also obviously begins in the heart. But it's best described by what it does. How do you know if someone loves you? Just because they say so? You know, it's, I was listening to something on the radio this last week. <coughs> and uh, it was a gal who, who basically, uh, as she put it, was looking for love in all the wrong places. And she said that basically when she got married... She wanted her husband to meet all the emotional needs in her life. That's what she was looking for. She was looking for a man. So she gets married, and obviously no husband could meet probably even a tenth of the emotional needs of most women. So, you know, she was sorely kind of mixed up here about this whole deal and disheartened about it. And she said, you know, it wasn't until I went to my Heavenly Father after I became a Christian and put the piece of the puzzle back together... After I got my emotional needs met by God, it finally freed me up in my relationship with my husband. And see, this kind of love, agape love, is the kind of love that, that always acts out somehow. And I was encouraged by one thing she said, where she said, you know, people have different, she called them love languages. And she said, so you may be married to somebody who may very seldom walk up to you and give you a big hug and say, oh, I just love you, honey. But their love language is action. Their love language is service. So they may do things for you. And in their mind, they're showing you <laughs> that they love you. And yet, the woman who is not oriented that way. She needs to hear it. She wants to feel it, all that stuff. That's not meeting her need. And so it's, it was kind of, an, it kind of pulled off the, the, uh, the, the curtain, and I thought, wow, that's interesting. It kind of gives you a different aspect of your, of your relationship. But, but this kind of love is always based on what usually is done, by what it does. 1 John 4, um, 7 to 10, agape love is... Is, is the love that God is, that, that God demonstrates, and that He gives. First um, John 4, 11 and 12 says, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And God demonstrates His own love toward us. When did He do this? And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John 5, 5. And over in 1 John, he says, If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. See, because we're Christians, the, the love of God abides in our hearts. Therefore, we can live up to God's standard of even loving our enemies. Jesus told his disciples a new commandment in John 13. He says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. You know what he just finished doing there? He was washing their feet as an example of humble, self-giving love. 
The disciples didn't do anything to earn Jesus' love. He freely gave it to them. Uh, they were basically a bunch of self-centered, quarrelsome guys, jealous of each other. Oh, who's going to sit on your right hand? All this stuff. They were concerned about things that Christ didn't want them to be concerned about. Yet everything that Jesus did and said to them was done in an act of kindness, in an act of love. And that's the kind of love that he even calls for us to have for our enemies. Someone wrote this, Love's question is never who to love. Because we're to love everyone, but only how to love most helpfully. So we're not to love merely, you know, who we want to love. We're, We're called to love as God does. He embraces the whole world. He loves each of us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were his enemies and he still reached out to us. He still loved us. And the interesting thing is those who refuse to trust in God are his enemies, but he is not theirs. In the same way, we are not to be enemies of those who may be enemies of us. It's just kind of an important thing. In the commentary this week, I saw this illustration. They said, in 1567, King Philip II of Spain appointed the Duke of Alba, the governor of the lower part of the nation. The Duke was a bitter enemy of the newly emerging Protestant Reformation. His rule was called the Reign of Terror, and his council was called the Bloody Council because it had ordered the slaughter of so many Protestants. It is reported that one man who was sentenced to death for his biblical faith managed to escape during the dead of winter. As he was being pursued by a lone soldier, the man came to a lake whose ice was thin and cracking. Somehow he managed to get safely across the ice, but as soon as he reached the other side, he heard his pursuer screaming. The soldier had fallen through the ice and was about to drown. And at the risk of being captured, tortured, and eventually killed, or even drowning himself, the man went back across the lake, rescued his enemy. He said, because the love of Christ constrained him to do it. He knew he had no other choice if he was to be faithful to to his Lord. See, that's what the love of God is to do in our lives. We are so far off the mark in this way. We all are. I mean, we, we look at people who, are, who are, are getting what they deserve and we have this kind of attitude of, of revenge within us. And, you know, it doesn't take very long. Just turn on the evening news. And, you know, it just drives you batty. Um, some of the things that, that occur, I mean, it's, some of you were, were showing pictures of the stuff down in Berkeley. I mean, that stuff just irritates me. That whole thing. I mean, I, I would not be a good... A protester. I would be a pastor who was going to jail if I was in that situation. I just could not deal with it emotionally. I'd get too upset. And, uh, you know, I don't know how some folks do that. But Jesus says that we're to reach out and we're to love our enemies, um, whether we want to or not. We're also to pray for our persecutors. He says there in verse 44, pray for those who persecute you. Um, I mean, that's, that's, that's a strong word, but that's what it says. And if you think you're not going to be persecuted, John fifteen twenty says, hey, they persecuted me. Wait till they get a hold of you. When I'm no longer around, Jesus said, they're going to have to look for somebody. And who are they going to pick on? They're going to pick on the followers of Christ. And I just think that it's an important thing to remember that we're, we're not to take revenge on these people. With that being said, sometimes we think of our persecutors as those who are outside the church. I've been in ministry long enough, been around Christian people long enough that I could say that I've felt some persecution from people within the church, from brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, how are we to act then? Are we to seek revenge or are we to do what God calls us to do? And pray for them. And then he, he says this in verse 45. We want to do these things, Matthew five forty-five, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
In other words, you want to emulate your Father who is in heaven. You want to become His Son. And He gives this illustration. He says He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, when we pray for our persecutors, when we love our enemies, we're proving that we are sons of God. We're we're making that evident. We're allowing the love of God to do. Could I do that? No, I can't do that on my own. I mean, somebody cuts me off on the freeway. I'm ticked. You know, I'm going after him. You know, but that's not what God wants me to do. So I got to yield that to God and say, God, you know what? Just help me keep my cool. Just whatever. Hi, you know, smile at him. That even makes him angrier sometimes. John 13.35, Jesus said this, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have what? Love one for another. I love when, I think it was Chuck Swindoll said in one of his books about love within the Christian church. He says it's kind of like Christians are like uh, porcupines. And he goes, you know, porcupines, you know, you, get, you can only get so close before you start pricking each other. Then you've got to move back apart. He said, because you see this dance that happens in the church. You know, everybody wants to get close to whatever. And then it's like, oh, I can't stand that person. You get away from them. You know, that's just our human nature. That's just who we are. 1 John 4.16 says, God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. He says in verse 20, if someone says, I love God, but I hate my brother. 1 John 4, he is a liar. And the one who loves, who, who does not love his brother, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Interesting point. See, loving as God loves does not make us sons of the Father, but it gives evidence that that's who we are. And it has to come from something supernatural, because I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm not a real lovey-dovey guy. And so it has to be kind of the Holy Spirit through me working that out. Well, what's he mean here about it? he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and all this stuff and the sense of rain on the righteous and the unrighteous? It'd be so much easier if, if God just did that, you know, uh, instead of just everybody. Well, the evil people, they wouldn't get any rain, so their crops would, you know, I mean, that would be the right way to do it in my mind. But God doesn't do it that way because there's such a thing as called common grace. And God is kind of almost indiscriminate in his, his love and his grace as he pours that out to a certain aspect of people's lives. And so everybody benefits from the rain. Everybody benefits from the sun. It's not just the good people. See, that's why so many times you hear and, and, and you see it in, in, in people's lives. You, you have Christians who are trying to do the right thing. They're trying so hard to, you know, to not cheat on their taxes and give the, the boss the right amount of work every week and do everything right according to the letter. And yet their life is just in shambles. It's like one trial after another. And then they look across the desk at work and they see their coworker who's just a total pagan smokes and drinks and sleeps around and, you know, does all sorts of evil continuously, day in and day out. And they got the nice house on the hill and, you know, they missed a couple paychecks that wouldn't even put a dent in their checkbook. And they got the nice girlfriend or wife or family and everything just looks so put together. And you look at that and you say, God, why? Here I am trying to do this. I'm really trying. And look at this. This guy's living like the devil, literally. And it seems like you're blessing his life. You just have to remember that, you know what? God will mete out justice in his timing, not ours. And there will come a time. Unless this person repents of their evil wickedness and all that stuff, then they will be called to pay for their sins. And all the amount of money, all the amount of cars and, and whatever else they have now is not going to mean anything to them. And yet, here we are kind of trudging away in life, trying to do what's right, maybe living paycheck to paycheck. Don't be so naive to think that God doesn't see that. 
that God doesn't realize that. See, it's easy, beloved, to trust God and to love God and to, to let God live through your life when everything's going fine. Then it's, oh, that's easy. But see, God is not just looking at us during the easy times. He's looking at us when trials come into our life, when we're down and out, when we don't know where the next meal's coming from, we don't know where, you know, how we're going to do this or how we're going to deal with our kids or whatever. All those things just pile up against us. Then he says, he's kind of looking down from heaven. He's saying, are you going to trust me now? Are you going to trust me now? Don't think I don't know what's going on in your life. I have perfect control of what's going on in your life. I know exactly what's going on in your life. And I've placed each thing there at this strategic time for you to learn to grow closer to me. And one day you'll be rewarded. Trust me. It may not be right now, but one day you will be rewarded. And it's important that we remember that. So we have to kind of manifest that sonship. We have to embrace that. God wants us to do that. And then he basically goes on there in verses 46, 47. He says, do more than you ought to do. And what he says is, you know what? If you love those who love you, big deal. What's the, what's the, who cares about that? And that's what the Pharisees, the scribes were doing. They were reaching out to people that they loved, that they enjoyed being with, saying, oh, look at how we love these people. But if an enemy walked by, well, cursed be the ground that you walk on. And what he's doing, he's drawing a parallel here. He's saying, you know, don't even the, the tax gatherers do that? Don't even the worst of, the, of the, the social class do that? I mean, don't even people in prison do that? Oh, watch the back of the, the person who's watching their back. That's, I mean, that's a common thing among the human race. He says, and if you greet your brothers only, well, who cares? Don't even the Gentiles do that? See, what he's saying is, do more than what's expected. To show the love of Christ, the love of God that is in you. If you're a follower of Christ here this morning and you go to work and the boss says, hey, do A, B, C. Well, you know what? Do A, B, C, and D. Just do it. Don't expect anything. Just do it. If you're here as a, a young person and mom and dad say, hey, you know what? Can you take out the trash? Well, rather than sit there and argue for 15 minutes, well, I didn't do it. You know, so-and-so did it last time. And, you know, why do I have to do it every time? Just do it. And then not only take out the trash, but go over and start doing the dishes. Whoa! Your parents would think they went died and went to heaven. It's like, what, what's going on here? This is not making any sense. But you know what? What you're doing is you're revealing the love of Christ, the love of God, the change that God has made in you, because you're willing to go above and beyond what's expected of you. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't come naturally to me. It just doesn't. It's something that you have to continually yield to the Holy Spirit. To ask God, hey, you know what, God, do this through me because I know I can't. There's no way I can do this. It goes right back to Matthew 5, 16. See, this whole thing is just a big circle. Started off, you know, blessed are the in the morning and all this stuff. And then he kind of gives some illustrations. He starts right off where he, 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 he began. Because it really comes down to letting your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and what? Glorify you? No. Because they know that you could never do what you're doing, but they would glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, that's the purpose of the Christian life. The purpose of the Christian life is to live lives that are glorifying and supernatural lives that people look at and go, whoa, how does he do that? How does she do that? And it doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter where you're at in life, any of that. Because that's something that everybody will relate to. And in the end, he basically just summarizes it and he says, therefore, if you do these things, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is that something that we can do on our own? No. We need the Holy Spirit to live that life through us. Because there's no way that I'm going to live a perfect life. There's no way that I'm going to emulate a perfect father. And God is perfect. 
His justice is perfect. His mercy, everything about God is perfect. And what he's trying to do here is he's trying to point out all these illustrations, whether it has to do with love or retaliation or adultery or murder, or keeping oaths, whatever it may be. He wants us to kind of be led to this final place of spiritual bankruptcy where, okay, this is what they told us to do. We could do that, but now Jesus is telling us to do this. We could never do that. And Jesus is saying, that's exactly my point. You can't do it. There's no way you can do this. You need to be totally dependent on God to carry out any of these things, to do anything right in the, in the Christian life. Um, we need the love of Christ within us and we need the Holy Spirit to enable us. But boy, when that happens, when, that, when we begin to depend on the Holy Spirit to do these things through us, when we begin to live lives that are not based on what we can do or what we think we can do, but based on what God can do and who God is and not who we are, I mean... Man, the wheels fall off the cart. It's amazing what God can do. It's, it's, just, it's just amazing. And I would trust you. And I would ask you this week to ask yourself to say, you know what? Am I living my Christian life by my own means as far as it is comfortable to me? Or am I willing to embrace even what we, said this, what we read this morning and say, you know what, God? I don't want to be comfortable. I'm tired of being comfortable. I want to live on the edge. I want, I, want, I want to see you do some things in my life that I could definitely point to and say, this is God. This, no way is this me. See, that's where God wants us. He wants us teetering on that edge where we feel like we're going to fall. But just as, as, as we almost fall, He steadies us. We had the opportunity to go to a, a circus, that Circus Soleil uh, last week. And uh, they had a high wire act, and this one guy got out there and got this big pole, and he's standing there on this high wire, and there's a wire below him too. They're right on top of each other, which is kind of weird. But and and this guy behind him walks out, gets up on his shoulders, jumps over, and lands in front of him on the wire. Pretty amazing. I mean, they're pretty up, up pretty high. And when the guy landed, you could see he didn't have his balance, and he ended up falling caught himself, but he fell. And I thought, you know, that's kind of like the Christian life. I mean, you know, we get all psyched up and we're up on, on God's shoulders and we're going, yeah, I can do it. We get down on the wire and we're feeling pretty confident and all of a sudden one little thing goes wrong. And what happens? But you know what? The neat thing is, is God's always there as our safety net. He's not going to allow us just to go splat on the ground. How would that bring him glory? That wouldn't bring him any glory. But I'd rather be the person that tried to do that and fell and was protected by God's providence and His care than never ventured out on the high wire. Because you're not really trusting what God will do through you. My prayer is that you'll, you'll become more trusting as you know more about God and you'll realize that His general intent for you is to be as successful and as and is, is, is trusting as you could ever be. Because he wants to do a work in you. He wants to do a work in all of us on a continuous basis. It never ends. That's the neat thing. You never stop growing more like the Savior. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that we can come to this place and gather here. And, and Lord, we just uh, we think back on all the things that we read and studied these past several weeks here in chapter 5. And, and Lord, it really does go full circle. That, Lord, unless we're utterly dependent on you from the very onset, and we realize that we're spiritually bankrupt, that we realize that there's nothing good in us that's going to save us, that we need to cry out to you to be merciful to us, a sinner. Father, we know that that's the cry of our heart this morning. And, Lord, I pray that as if there's any here who have yet to trust you, I pray that they would pray that prayer, that they would cry out to you and announce their dependence on you, not on their own talents, though they may be very talented, not on their own giftedness, though they may be very gifted, 
But Father, all those things come from you. We don't own any of those. And so, Lord, I pray that each one would turn their heart to you. And Lord, that you would begin to do a, a work in our lives that feels risky, that feels like, wow, we're willing to take the chance with God because God is on our side. And we're going to start living in a way that makes people notice, not us, but what God is doing in us, rather than just being comfortable and relaxed in our spiritual armchairs of grace. Lord, I pray that maybe we don't feel comfortable talking to others about Christ. But Lord, I pray that that's something you've instructed us to do. I pray that we would take that step of obedience and begin this week to reach out to those around us who have yet to hear the gospel of Christ. And Lord, that we could see them transformed, that we could see their hearts changed from just darkness to light. And Lord, that they would be saved and free from their sin. And Father, that you would receive the glory and honor. We thank you for that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.